My name is Jan Welch, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Then and Now Blading podcast featuring Clark Kirkman. Clark has a long history in rollerblading. He worked at Woodward East for four years. He's built a massive skate ramp setup at his house in Maryland called a compound. And recently, he launched his very own skate brand, which is called Faction, and it's a carbon fiber skate. I talk to Clark about the skate, about the ramp, about his history in the sport, about Woodward. We talk about a lot of things. It's a long interview, but it's really interesting. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, make sure and hit the like button. Subscribe to this channel. If you haven't already, hit the bell icon to be notified of all new uploads. And you can follow me on social media. I have links to my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the description below. And if you're listening to the podcast version of this interview and you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It really helps me out to promote this show in the podcast medium. Now, if you do want to support this channel, I have a Patreon page. And my Patreon page is a way for me to raise some extra money to keep providing more content on this channel. And all Patreon supporters will receive exclusive access not available on the YouTube channel. And also have access to all the videos on the YouTube channel without any advertising. So it'll be ad-free videos available on the Patreon site. And I have a link to that in the description below. Let's get started with episode 11 of the Then and Now Blading podcast with Clark Kirkman. Hello, everybody. I'm Jan Welch. Welcome to the Then and Now Blading podcast. Today's guest is Clark Kirkman. And Clark is a longtime inline skater who has just started a new exciting skate brand called Faction. He's also the creator, builder of the infamous compound skate ramp network, whatever you have in your property there outside of <laughs> Washington, D.C., right? Is that yep. where you live? Yeah, we're like uh, northwest of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Cool. Yep. So how, how far are you from Baltimore itself? Uh, maybe half hour, 45 minutes. And Baltimore is where you grew up? Uh, I actually grew up north of Baltimore in uh, Bel Air, Maryland. Uh, so it's like it's like a half hour from Baltimore, just really close to the Pennsylvania line. Okay. I've only been through that area once, and it was on a road trip. Um, how old are you now? I turned 43 last year. Okay. So you've been skating for a long time. When did you start skating? How old were you? Uh, I want to say it was like 11 or 12. It was in uh, the end of the year, 1990. So uh, 90, 91 is when I really started to kind of pick it up and, and skate. So you've been skating as long as I have. I got my first skates for my neighbor in 1989. Yeah, yeah. Um, before, before I, that was when I started like aggressively skating. Before that, I was playing hockey in the neighborhood, you know, like as you do, uh, playing hockey, riding bikes and skateboards and then I found rollerblading and it was kind of all over. That's what I did. How is the skate scene in your area back then? Did you have a good sized crew of kids? No, no, it was me. Uh, it was me and I think four of my friends. Uh, and realistically, uh, it was me to start off with. And then they just kind of kept biking and kept skateboarding and we all kind of did it together in our driveway. And then uh, eventually we all kind of picked up rollerblading. And do any of them still skate? No, no. Uh, they are all uh, fully grown up and kids, family, 
all that kind of stuff. You know, as you get older, uh, people tend to start to go their own directions and, and get busy with life. But I still keep in touch with all of them, but I don't think they would pick up skates now if they had to. Well, you're fully grown up too. Wife, kids, I, I, kids behind you, right? There are. I, I, have, I have four of them, four girls. Uh, yeah, I just, I just never stopped. You know how it goes. You just keep doing it and keep doing it. And you keep doing it until you have, still you stop having fun. And when you stop having fun, you do that. And I still enjoy it. So, so who from your early days of skating does still skate? I mean, you've done like Mike Falcone for a long time. I, I have. So uh, it's crazy. So when you, when you've been skating as long as I have, you go through kind of groups of crews as you like kind of not necessarily your career progresses but like as you grow up you have different groups of people that you skate with all the time so mike mike falcone and casey norris uh are ones that i've been skating with for a very long time um they're both from maryland uh so i would say they i met them probably 10 years into when i was starting to skate uh anyway so yeah just they we were around maryland going to spicy skate park going to westminster skate park so they were they were around and we knew each other. Um, and then as I moved to when I moved to camp uh, and I was living at Woodward, they were all living there as well. So I heard that you used to rip up Spicy Skate Park back in the day. Tell me you about know, that park. I I love that park. Uh, when I first started going there, um, it actually wasn't Spicy's. It was owned by a different. Um, it was actually owned by a skateboard shop, and I. I was going there literally every day to skate by myself, just skating there. And uh, to the point where the skateboarders let me in for free because I had been there so much, they were just like, you, you've paid enough, come on in. <laughs> so I ended up skating there every single day for a long time before I even, um, before Spicy bought it. Um, but when Spicy bought it, you know, it was a standard park from the 90s. It, you know, it had a really good mini ramp. It had um, some down ledges, a launch box, a normal pyramid, a standard bower box kind of situation. So, like, it was pretty well-rounded for, for what was around during those times. But um, honestly, it was like, it was my everyday for a while. So it was 90s, 90s park. I'm sure did that probably had a lot of bladers at it back then, right? Uh, it did. You know, when I first started going there, not so much. But then as uh, when Spicy bought it, uh, it turned into a Blader Park, really, m majority uh, in the 90s. Um, we we had tours and stuff come through there all the time. Um, John Elliott was there, like, really, when he was young, when he was traveling around, he came through the area for a while. There was just there was roller bears everywhere. And specifically where we're where we're located in the um, Baltimore, Virginia, DC metro area, it's like we were in the middle of like multiple scenes and we were still close enough to where people from Philly would come down and skate. And, you know, a lot of the people that are, are still in the industry now and big names kind of were passing through the area during that time. So it was a really good time for rollerblading as a whole. Who's like the big kids skating there at the park? Anybody recognizable? Um, I would say, uh, you had p kids like, do you know, Willie Trebek and, uh, yeah. Ace. Mm -hmm. So they were the generation after us and they were like young bucks when they were there. Um, Sean and Colin Kelso would come down occasionally, Jeff Fredericks, Jimmy Shooter, they would all come down. 
because um, we were only like maybe an hour and a half, two hours from Philly. So uh, it was just really convenient. Um, you know, Jeff Fredericks was was kind of a bigger name back then because this was before before Senate, before any of that. We were just kids that were learning to skate and we, we would have a lot of fun like that. So um, was Kilgore around in those days, too? Yep. Kilgore, Majette come down. Uh, Matt Gallagher, Matt Gallagher and um, uh, a lot of the D.C. people would come up. Corey Donahoe was in that time frame as well in um, in in near D.C. in northern Virginia. So before 1999, you were just skating. And then that year you started working at Woodward. And was that your first time working in the industry? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, um, at that point I was, um, I was living in Baltimore and I was, um, I was a manager of Spicy Skate Park. So like after I'd been skating there for years, uh, I got, I started riding for the shop as a team rider. Um, and I started working at Spicy with John Liskey. Um, he was the manager of the shop. I ended up managing the park for a while. Um, and at that point, John Liskey had gone to camp, uh, I think for, two or three weeks or a couple weeks. Uh, and he had just randomly mentioned to me that they needed, uh, they needed some counselors and they needed people to come up and work. And he was like, do you want to come up for a week? And I was like, absolutely. You know, I, I took that opportunity to go up to camp. So in 99, I went up to camp for, I think a week. I think it was only one week I was there. I ended up being a counselor and a instructor. Um, and then after that year in 99, uh, the following year, I came back for the entire summer. So it really kind of snowballed from there. I mean, what can be better than, than being at camp all summer, you know, skating every day and just having fun. And I was in the, in the prime, too, of Woodward it, yeah. inline it, skating, you know, campers it, and everything. It was, it was crazy. And, you know, as I look back at camp, um, just the amount of people that would come through camp as kids, you know, you, the thing about camp is that during that time, you would have 12 weeks during the summer that, you know, was packed with rollerbladers, you know, every week we had a lot of rollerbladers there and people from all over the country would come uh, with their groups. Like you would have the, the Texas kids come through, you'd have the Boston kids come through. You just have all these little groups of people. They were all really good rollerbladers, like from Texas, you know, you had um, Lonnie come through, Frank and, Stoner, and Frank Stoner would come Howard. through, just yeah, just destroying everything. Like th the prime of rollerblading, you know. Yeah. You'd have like Aaron Feinberg and his brother Ruben come through. You'd have all the Boston kids like um, Artie Pimentel and and um, who else? Oh, and, and Atlanta, the Atlanta kids. You'd have Julian Ball, David Sizemore come through. Um, it, basically, yeah, everybody, everybody you know, but not their grown-up selves you'd have them as kids just trying to be you know you know how kids are just having fun and just raising havoc across everything were any of those kids that were there back then that weren't pro yet that end up turning pro kids that you instructed um so when i was there i was teaching um they had uh it was like i think nine or ten groups that they would have and they would have level one through level 10 or nine or ten so I ended up teaching the second highest group when I first started. Um, I was teaching the second highest group and Eddie Campos was teaching the top group. So a lot of the kids came through when, um, when I was first there were in Eddie's group. 
So he was taking them all over the place, doing, making them ride vert, making them skate things they didn't want to skate, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then when, uh, after a couple of years of, I think it was one or two years of that, uh, unfortunately, Eddie passed away. Um, and after that, I ended up taking over top group. So when I was teaching top group, all of those kids would come through my group. And what's funny is it was a little different than just uh, instruction. It wasn't really instruction. It was more, hey, let's go try different things. Let's go skate these parks that you don't want to. And I'll help you out if you want that. Most of the time it was just sessioning. You know, you'd session with these groups of kids and, and give them pointers where you could help. So um, I, I had so many kids come through there that were in my group that were just so good. So, and it, it kind of skewed my, my vision of the industry a little bit because later on, you see these kids in the industry killing contests, just being the kind of rock stars that they are. And I can't stop seeing them as campers that came through. So it really just kind of, that dynamic was like always weird for me because they were the, the kids that I, that I saw at camp, you know, just messing around and having fun. They just, they weren't the, you know, the big rock stars that they end up being. That's cool. That's pretty cool. You got to meet them when they were little dudes. Yeah, I remember the Texas guys every summer, they would all go, you know, from Austin and, and Dallas. Yeah. And group. And it that was, was so uh, always a highlight of their summer. Um, what was your favorite part, park to skate at Woodward at that time? Uh, oh, that's, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> that's a hard question. Cause at camp, they, they really had uh, everything you could think of. It, literally anything you'd want to skate there, you could find. Um, I have always been a, a mini ramp. I, I love mini ramp. So Cloud9 mini ramp was phenomenal when they built it. So when I, when I first went there, Cloud9 hadn't been built yet. So it was just the standard. The old Egypt was there um, with the big banks and like the school had like the Brian boxes and stuff like that. But as soon as they built um, Cloud9, it was like rollerblade heaven. You had that, like, it was like a 60 foot spine mini with an eight foot radius on it. And, you know, you had the down ledges and the, the street boxes that were on the other side. Um, that was probably where I skated most of the time. Um, to be fair, also right around when I was living at camp um, was also when I was kind of getting into competing in ASA. So there was a lot of things I forced myself to skate that like skated a lot of launch box and stuff like that, just so I could hold my own in contests. And I'm not just like, just clearing a box in a contest run. So I, I forced myself to skate a lot of things. So, um, but everything at camp was always good. The only thing that kind of bummed me out about camp was like, they never really built like a bank with a handrail. Me and my friends there, Falcone and Casey would always give them a hard time about building just a plain bank and a handrail. That's all we wanted. Something similar to street, but just, like That's the airport rail. Such a basic thing that they could have made easily. They, they absolutely could have made it. They, they just, uh, most of the people that are building things at camp were uh, bikers. They're mm -hmm. professional bikers. So Nate Wessel was building a lot of that stuff. And he would, his goal was really to make these really complicated, cool lines and how everything flows together in a park. So usually a bank with a handrail really doesn't fit into that. So was but. Ryan Corrigan building ramps there too at that time? Yes. The, basically all of them. So you had John Saxon, Ryan Corrigan, you had uh, a plethora of like skateboarder builders as well as bike builders. 
um, there's a there's a lot of groups kind of coming in and out. A lot of yeah, people Ryan, cutting Ryan, their teeth at Woodward. Ryan was a good friend of ours from Austin, so we all you know he grew up we you know from Lonnie's skate park days, mm -hmm. and I still talk to him now. Um, always been yeah. a cool dude. In your early days of skating, what was the first video you had a clip in? Oh, uh, so I think the first video I had a clip in would have been VG, I want to say 11. I want to say VG 11. It was like a, a random, just a random trick. I think I, I might have negative sweat stance the rail or something. Yeah. It was, it was something completely random because you know how Dave would film. He would just come through, get cl random clips on tour things. And um, it was one of those surprises that you, you find out when you got the video. You know, you buy it and you're like, oh, there I am, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it would have been VG11, I think. How many VGs uh, were you in? Uh, four, three or four, I think. So it was VG11, I think VG13, I had some clips. Um, that was always kind of the struggle because I never really was the, the type of skater. You know, when you have those skaters that are like all about clips, like they go out and they're like, this is, I'm trying to get clips. I'm getting these street clips. I'm trying to do this. I was never that guy. I was always a guy like session in with my friends and we would always forget to film. So <laughs> Uh, I didn't tend to film until I got to camp and was filming for like Colony of Summer kind of stuff. Once I was filming for that, I had a lot, lot more kind of clips because it was more, more of a, a thing in my life is, was filming. I haven't seen Colony of Summer in a long time. I have to check that out. It's literally my favorite videos just because it was such a special time for me personally in rollerblading, being at camp, seeing all the pros come through and then like, then going on for like going into ASA contests because that was really the hub for most ASA skaters was like they would live at camp all summer and travel to the contests. Uh, it was just an easy place to be. Were you involved in making those videos too? Uh, some of them, yeah. So Dave Payne did a lot of those from like um, from the early Colony of Summers, like I want to say like three or four, Colony of Summer three or four to like I think seven or eight Dave Payne was doing the videos for camp so i would film uh all all summer uh pros would come through and i would film all the sports um with their visiting pros just to get clips for dave and then i would send all those out to dave for him to edit log and edit all of them a couple of years i would go out to um i think one year i went out to dave to help him log and capture some things while i was out there but um i mainly just was on the ground filming that stuff because there were so many people coming through camp on a daily basis that Dave couldn't get it all, you know. I can imagine. So you said you went to a lot of ASA events back then. How did you place in those? Did you have any top finishes or? So uh, for a long for a long time, I didn't compete. I, I just didn't necessarily see the point of it. It was um, I started out going to NIST contests in like early, like early '96 was my first contest in, in Nice in New York. Um, and then I took a long break after that and came back to it. I wanna say 2001, I started competing again um, on the amateur tour. Um, the first year I, I, I did okay. I think I, I, I placed top 10 on most of them. Um, 
you know, it was, they always had those regional tour things. We would travel around. So like we'd go to Airborne, we'd go all the places they had contests and just session and skate. And um, it was definitely fun. Uh, but that first year I ended up making to finals and then I went to Texas. I think it was Texas. They had, uh, it was the year that, you know, Farmer did VG19. He filmed VG19 during that time. Um, I, I did okay, uh, but I didn't, it was the first time kind of competing on a large venue like that. So I was just kind of just having fun. But then that following year, I came back uh, and made it to finals. I had won a, re a regional contest. Uh, it was the Baltimore contest I, I won. And then um, I went to finals that were in LA and I ended up getting second place at ASA AM finals. Oh, wow. So That's cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Later. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 20 years later. Uh, it was it was amazing. It, it's one of those things that you like you work hard for and you contest skating has been one of those kind of avenues of skating that's really underappreciated in rollerblading as a whole. It's always been kind of seen as like not um, the not the coolest, not the core of rollerblading, but it's it has always been something for me that's like it's the technical, consistent rollerblading that you want to see, you know, you know, people like Aragon and even Stefan Alfano, like they would put together a contest run that was just really difficult tricks that they would lace every single time. That's always been kind of my pro my perspective on rollerblading is I want to do everything and I want to do it well and consistent. Um, so contest skating really kind of plays to my strengths um, as a rollerblader. Um, so yeah, so that year um, I placed second. Yeah, second. Uh, Matt Donald beat me from Canada. Okay. Um, and he's then still, he's I, still around. He is. He is. He is. <laughs> he is. Um, but yeah, it um, it was always it was always a good time, especially at those contests because the pro tour had like a lot of big names on it and people skating at a high level. So it was always fun to go to. And then you had always had those random sponsors of the contest. You had like Yoohoo's and corn nuts doing just crazy stuff so it made for a fun summer yeah i spent 1999 the summer of 1999 traveling europe and i went to every single amateur asa stop that they had that year it was pretty yeah, fun it, it, it's fun once you get past the idea that it's a contest and you're kind of put on show for things it's 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 fun once you kind of get into it and have have a good time doing it so when you were younger and skating and you know go to contest or think about doing contest what did you want to achieve in rollerblading like what was your end goal did you have one or you were just going with the flow uh so when i was younger so when i was first learning stuff it was my goal in rollerblading was literally just to do every trick and do it both ways that was that was that was it i just wanted to be able to do everything i wanted to try all the tricks um then uh once I'd been rollerblading for a very long time, contests kind of came into the mix of um, an opportunity to kind of prove myself a little bit. You know, like I've always had this perspective of, of rollerblading where contests was kind of like the leveling field for, for people when they go rollerblade. You, you get judged, they compare you to other people on another day. There was less uh, politics in it from, from a standpoint wasn't always fair, but it, there was less like you had to know the right people to get things moving forward. 
So it was kind of a, a place for me to say, okay, how am I comparing to other people that rollerblade? Because um, for me, it was always kind of a technical perspective on rollerblading. I like to think about tricks a lot and figure out how to do them and figure out the different techniques to be able to do them. Um, I always thought that, that realistically, I could do any trick that I wanted to if I just spent enough time figuring out what that is, how to do it. Um, so that's kind of been my, per, my, my perspective on rollerblading as a whole in general, so. You think we see more circuits come back like ASA? Because really you only have feasts, which is a pretty high level. Yeah. You see anything coming back like the former amateur circuit competitions? I, I know, you know, Blading Cup has their qualifiers. It's not really the same. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 not really the same. But, you know, I, I'm excited about everything they're doing and, and what they're doing. I think I think it would be good for us to have uh, a kind of unifying competition circuit. I don't think we actually have the numbers right now or the um, visibility to kind of handle that much of infrastructure uh, currently. I think in the future we could, if we get our numbers back up, if the industry grows a little bit more to be able to be in the spotlight a little bit more than it is currently. Um, I, I look forward to it because I do, I do enjoy it. Um, but I think as the industry, industry grows a little bit more, we can kind of find our home a little bit. And um, I don't necessarily think it'll be like that it has to be like X games or anything like that. But I do think, uh, I think fees will grow a little bit. Hopefully they can start an amateur part of that or they did some, some junior stuff they did, which I think was great for the sport. Um, I think our biggest focus industry-wide really need to be on like the youth now. They have to have an outlet of something that they can kind of make their own in rollerblading. Um, the way we did contest series and amateur um, ASA contests and all that kind of stuff. We need that place for, to showcase the younger, ver the younger versions of um, the kids nowadays, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the way Blading Cup does it on the street, that's how a lot of the, you know, NISSAs and ASAs were in Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, they would have them during like a street festival or something. Yeah. So there's a lot yep. of visibility. And an event like that's not, you know, if you could have a breakdown course that so you take around a different, I don't think it's, you know, too far-fetched to make happen. You know, yeah. having, building a big arena type of thing, you know, like feast. Now that's a different, different yeah, thing, I but... What's funny is that for, for all of those contest test series, it's, it's never really been about the, the rollerblading itself. It's always been, how does it appeal to the larger sponsors and how can it be a show that brings in a lot of people to get a lot of different eyes on different products that are out there. Um, and that, that venue is rollerblading. So uh, though I think the more we grow the sport and like do more things like John's doing with, with Blading Cup, growing that visibility, larger sponsors will get in there to be able to kind of propel us to that larger spotlight as a whole. I, I honestly think we just need to keep going the way we're going and just slowly grow it and let us uh, kind of mature into it. Because uh, I think before rollerblading was like in the spotlight, it was everywhere. We were selling so many skates. They were selling just millions and millions of pieces of, of, of inline skates and people were just jumping on it kind of early where we hadn't really matured as a sport. I think now that we're, we're more mature and we kind of know who we are as an industry, uh, we'll be better positioned to kind of capitalize on those type of contests uh, moving forward. Similar to like Winter Clash, because Winter Clash, I think they do it well. 
the more that we do stuff like that, where the crowd is just so into the sport itself and making it such a spectacular that everyone's so amped to get there and be there. Um, I think that's what we need to have in the industry just to make it kind of an all around good experience for both the sponsors and the people involved. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And, and you see some outside sponsors did come in with, you know, blading cup this year. Yeah. I know in the spring one, they're going to add, you know, quad skating, which was also Frankie's that's awesome. event. So that'll bring in more, you know, sponsors. I Absolutely. always thought, you know, I never liked the concept of like B3, you know, bikes, blades, boards type of yeah. events. I do like the concept of combining quads and like when they do the world skate, where they have like aggressive and then speed and then slalom yeah. and all that stuff. It was like just blading, like rolling sports only, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, one of the things that we have to, we have to make sure that we do is, is the inclusivity of like all avenues of um, blading all avenues of inline skating across the board and just kind of grow as a entire sport with us being part of it, being aggressive, you know, and have other things like a lot of the freestyle and the, the quads be involved and kind of grow that as a whole um, to make it a whole platform instead of us trying to go it alone to say, Oh, only aggressive. Like that's not, that's not beneficial. I think for any of us, um, even if some individuals don't necessarily like those avenues, we all need to be together to kind of grow it as an industry and not just think individually. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens, uh, you know, with the whole uh, COVID and everything yeah. the past few years, things has been weird. So when actually things get better and we actually have bigger events where people go to and the companies want to sponsor them right now, it's just like blading's grown, but we can't really do anything in person. Yeah. So we're, in, hopefully we're definitely in, the future, in a weird spot. Definitely yeah. in a weird spot. But I think that, you know, for, for me specifically, I, I think that it's been, COVID has been a weird time, but it also has given people time to think about certain things and time to kind of analyze what they're doing and do the things that are really important to them. So I think a lot of people have had that time to think that they didn't necessarily have when they were doing the nine to five grind uh, as they were doing it before. So I think there's opportunities in, in this time as well. And I think that um, the more the companies that are, are willing to kind of be in for the, the, the cause of growing rollerblading, the better. I fully agree with that. I want to get back to your skating. Mm -hmm. You've been known for doing a lot of negative tricks and also yes. for doing citric acids, which is a pretty yes. crazy trick. You're one of the first people I saw do that trick. Yeah. Were you in any videos doing yeah. it? And were you the first person to do that trick? Uh, I don't know if I was the first, I don't know if I was the first one. I, Actually, I don't even remember if I had it in, in a video. No? I mean, I've done them. But, uh, yeah, I love that trick. I, I mean, it, it's one of those things that back in the day, uh, negatives were like one of those things that people just never did. They didn't really do them because they, they looked weird and they, they hurt most of the time. Uh, there was somebody, uh, it wasn't a local, but um, in the industry, like really long time ago, I think his name was Kermit Day. Yeah, I Did remember Kermit Day. Yeah, negative Mizus he would do like uh -huh. on a angle iron box. I think I saw him do one of those once and I was like, it kind of like blew my mind that like, oh, you can grind on the inside of the skate too. Cause back then it was like we were riding TRSs and there was there was nothing. There was nothing to grind in there. <laughs> like you had to work really hard to do anything negative. But uh yeah, man, it's it just kind of it, it 
it kind of comes from that idea that I wanted to be able to do everything, no matter what it was, just to say, yeah, I could, I could do that. Uh, and could you, it just, could you do a switch? Uh, Citric? Citric, no, I haven't done that switch, but I, I should try. I mean, I might be able to do it. I'll try. I, I can still do the, the regular ones. So we'll see what, we'll see what happens next time we have a dry day here. What have you done it on? What's the last uh, citric acid you did? I, I did it on a, a handicap rail in the past. Um, I was do Usually we do it on a bunch of ledges. Ledges are kind of ideal for it. Um, I used to do it on many for like a week. That was fun. But it's, it's really kind of high risk there because if you miss, it's basically both shins straight to coping. There's really no way out of it. What's the Savannah? <laughs> I literally just had an argument last night about this, of course, on the internet. I mean, I am, I am a sucker for that argument. But officially, it is an alley 270 backside unity. But... It's so funny because the semantics of that argument, it, it, it gets me heated because I think because I've been rollerblading for so long that I started before the, it was even a trick and to see it progress to what a Savannah was and then see kids just misuse the name across the board. And now because they've been in rollerblading for 20 years now, they think it's like, oh no, I've been doing this forever. I know what I'm like come on. It's like, it, it used to be something. It used to mean something. You can't just change it, you know, but realistically, it's one of those things we know now. Uh, everybody knows what you're talking about, no matter what name you use for it. So <laughs> I kind of just roll with it now. In my old age, I let some of it slide a little bit. You ever have a trick talk with Frank Stoner? Yeah, yeah a lot. Semantics. The semantics of everything of naming and where the the linguists come up with things and and the locality of the names of the tricks we've we've talked about all of that it's uh it's actually it's really fascinating when you when you think about like all the development of trick names that people had in their small little crews all over the the world that have different names for things but inevitably they get to the same kind of naming or it's kind of close. So people understand what you're saying, even though it developed in your area specifically. I need to get Frank on the show. He's had, a, he's been on, on mushroom blading several times or the how to be on popular podcast. Yeah. Um, but I definitely need to get him on here. I, I'm, I'm surprised. Hey, I've known I'm Frank forever. I'm, I'm really know, it's, it's, it's still a fresh new show. You know, I've only been doing this channel for like four months. Still. That's Frank though. Like he's <laughs> he got he'll he'll talk to you about anything for forever. I know, like we could probably get an eight-hour episode in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it would be it would be riveting the whole thing. I wanted to ask you, growing up, who was the skaters or who were the skaters that influenced you the most? Well, uh I would say, you know, when I when I was coming up early, you know. Uh, I was really inspired by by Arlo probably more than anything else. Honestly, when I, when I first started, it really was Arlo and Chris Edwards. Those were like, those were the two. And then you know, then you also had people like Dave Kalosh that that you really look up to in the beginning. Um, that were kind of taking grinding 
in a new di direction. So it wasn't all just vert skating and airs and going big. It was more started going down that technical path. So in the early years, it was all about, for me, the technical grinding and the technical kind of street skating and park skating that they were doing. Um, but again, when you talk locally, there was people like, like John Liskey that, that rollerbladed and um, I looked up to just from being, um, knowing more than I did about rollerblading and knowing all about it and interested in, in those things. And skating with him was kind of um, a really big influence on me. Um, and then I would say probably the, the groups of people that I skated with more often. So the, the Mike Falcones and the Casey Norris's, it had always been about the friends that you have and the people you session with and those times that you spend with them skating, they really kind of influence my skating and the standards that I have for my rollerblading that um, I still have today. You know, it's all those good times that you have with friends really kind of keeps you going in the, in the sport. It's funny because John Lisky is has some sort of relation to Frank Stoner through some marriage or something. I forgot exactly what it was, but um, yeah, we visit him when I go to Colorado. We stayed yeah. over his house a couple times. Such a good dude. Yeah. He's a great dude. He he was um he was working at Spicy Skate Shop uh when I first started to ride for them, and we would skate. I would skate with him weekly. Um, it was it was great. He's the guy that would be kept giving me a hard time to go spin some pyramids and do all the weird grabs, you know, like not just the standard safety grabs, make sure I'm doing like hippie clitches and like all these other like obscure things. Why did you quit Woodward and how did you end up in San Diego? So, um, you know, I was living at, at camp, um, doing their videos, doing graphic design there. Um, I was living there. Uh, Casey Norris was living there. Mike Falcone was living there. Steph, his wife, uh, Steph Falcone was living there as well. Um, we were living there all year round. And, you know, when you live at camp, it's a, it's a different world than just being there during the summer. So it's, um, it's in a great experience, but literally when people leave from camp, it becomes no one's there. So you literally live there and you have things you do but you then skate all day and it becomes this like cycle so in 2004 i was getting to the point where i kind of uh not that i was done rollerblading but that i had done a lot of the things that i wanted to do and i was thinking you know if i want to kind of grow up a little bit and get a house and and you know a family and all those things that i had to uh get my degree so in 2004 I moved out to California to get my undergraduate degree in um, graphic design so um, I was in San Diego with um, basically everyone that was living at camp at that time moved to San Diego at that time as well we all kind of drove out together so it was Casey Norris Mike Falcone and his wife uh, and my girlfriend at the time uh, we all moved out to San Diego for basically for me to go to undergrad and them just to kind of hang out and live life. So it made it a really good time. Um, Cause at that point, I mean, you guys go ahead. I was just going to say at that point um, we, we decided to move out there just because um, I was like, I can go to school anywhere. Let, let's just pick somewhere nice. You know? So we were all like San Diego sounds fine. Um, and that was like at a peak of rollerblading there as well. So. 
San Diego does have amazing weather, you know, and it's it, and it was the prime time for blading. And I lived there at the same time you did. Mm-hmm. However, we didn't cross paths too often. I know yep. I saw Casey and Mike just a handful of times. Yeah, were you guys skating a lot out there? Yeah, yeah, we were skating a bunch. Um, the thing, the thing that I come to realize about San Diego and rollerblading is that the the weather is kind of a double-edged sword. I fell into the 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 problem that you know every day was 76 degrees, so I would be like, you know what, it'll be nice tomorrow. I'll go skating tomorrow, and that would just it would keep going every week. I'd be like, tomorrow's fine. And then it would be nice. It wasn't, I didn't have the urgency that I have everywhere else where it's like, oh, it's been raining for a week. I got to get out here on the one good day. So, so we had a lot of distractions out there where I would, I'd be in school and I'd have, you know, time I had to be in class and all that kind of stuff, but we still skated. We, we still uh, made our way around. Um, One thing I would say is also San Diego, at that time, at least from our perspective, was a little bit, um, a little bit clicky. So you guys had groups. You had groups of people that skated together and kind of only skated together. So not that it was hard to break into those, but it it wasn't as um, the internet wasn't as big of a thing then. Right. You didn't have those those meetup groups where you're like going to skate. It was, it's it's always been a sh- struggle to get people together to go s- street skating, but especially if you're new in a town, you didn't actually have all the connections that you'd need. So we would go explore on our own and just skate and find spots. What is funny is that most of the time we were out there, we would find like famous street spots that we had no idea were there. And we would just be walking past them and like, oh, it's that spot. And we would come back and skate it. That happened to us with um, with Garfield Elementary. Oh yeah. Those, those ledges, we just happened to be walking past them one day and we're like, Oh, we got to come back. We got to come back and skate. So I lived by Garfield for a long time. So we would just literally skate out the door and go skate Garfield. Yeah. I, that was I, awesome love that. I love that spot. That spot was one of my favorite spots. I've never notoriously been a ledge skater, but that spot was, was fun. There was another school that had replica ledges of that. Yeah. Um, somewhere in East County a little bit. It was exactly the same school, same ledges. Oh, yeah. I, Honestly, in San Diego, I skated some of the best street spots I've ever skated to this day. Um, Carmel Valley, uh, those ledges that were inside that school that you had to climb inside and they were slightly angled back but didn't look like it were by far the best things I've ever skated. I have to say with the schools there, you know, every school was a skate park, but yeah, in Texas, you have some pretty good schools too, but you didn't have to climb fences. Everything was open. In California, every school has got a fence around it. Yeah. And some of the yeah. fences would be like 20 feet high. So you're like climbing yeah. this like crazy fence. Or they would have this gnarly fence around the whole school. And then they would have some sort of gate with an emergency like button that you could just reach around and open it yep. super easily. Like yep. it was either one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they didn't do anything halfway. That was, it was always one of those things. Um, yeah, definitely. I knew... I probably knew to, so I knew so many spots because I used to just drive around every day looking for spots to film at. Yeah, yeah. and I still you were, know how to you get were to filming some. a lot more. I, I yeah. decided that that's the key to rollerblading crews is that if you don't have a guy that with you that is the filmer and the spot hunter, you're you're not gonna get you're not gonna skate any good street. Like it's just not gonna happen. Uh, and we never really had one of those people 
really in any of our crews, you know, it would probably be me. And I was the guy that was saying, I know where this great park is. So it just never worked out. I mean, now it's so easy too with the internet. You know, when I was back in Austin a few years ago, I would just get on Google Maps and I would look up every single school in like the Metroplex and like look at if I could see anything or you know, (laughs) find ditches or whatever that way. Yep. Um, And then just pin them and and spend a day driving to schools in a certain part of town and seeing if I find anything. Yeah. Back then, it's like you didn't really know anything was. You just kind of drove. You had no idea. My mind is a map, so if I go anywhere once, I can go back again, which oh, really yeah. helps with what really helped us for filming because I could get anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. I mean, I'm kind of that way, but I have to. I have to have gone there, like deliberately gone there. If I just randomly find a place, I always struggle to find it again. Just going back to Woodward real quick. Woodward's mm-hmm. changed a lot since you worked there. Owners, yes. you know, and they got you know, blading was that big, but you still had um richie and his wife and, and cameron mm-hmm. were still part of it and then now they're not they've all been kind of phased out how do you feel about how woodward's transitioned throughout the years i think uh i think that you know woodward as an entity itself has been always been a great thing for uh action sports as a whole it is a, a, a mecca for all, so many sports. Um, I think that people tend to forget that camp has always been, it is a business, you know, like it is, they're not in it just for the growth of the individual sports, they, but they're also in it for, you know, they're trying to make money from, from growing what they have there. A lot of times people go to camp with an expectation that they are, kind of a core entity of like they're more about the sports than anything else and realistically they're they're a summer camp for kids that's what they they are um so once you kind of get the idea that that that's the mo it helps you kind of come to grips with some of the choices that they make and the way they grow their business and the partnerships that they have they're looking for visibility for everything that they're doing and even more so now that they were purchased from a corporate entity, um, powder purchased them. So they, they are becoming more and more like a corporate entity than, than necessarily a family run business. When I was there, it was still Gary Ream owned it. Um, he had, uh, invest or investors, but owner, an owner group that he worked with, but he was running it and it, he ran it like a family. Like you were in good with Gary, you were good to go, you know? So, as I think time has gone on, more things have kind of grown, they've gotten bigger. And now that powder come in the picture, they're really going to that corporate kind of mentality to make sure all their T's are crossed and their I's are dotted. I think that from a scope standpoint, I think it's great because there's gonna be more money to be able to do things and it really um, have kids enjoy the experience of camp. Um, but from a big picture, it lessens the experience from a, pro going there or a core skater going there to just skate you know it's a it's a different experience now um i feel like it's almost similar to how you know Vale has bought up all the ski mountains you know yeah same type of thing it's taken the the kind of the the the, the local family you know yeah. mountain and turned into this corporate nightmare yeah but i i i have to reiterate that there are pluses and minuses to both of those 
you don't necessarily have the the homey family feel anymore but you also have a lot more money a lot more people coming through a lot more eyes on things as a whole um like the things they were able to bring in from like a digital media standpoint into camp has changed the experience for campers across the board which i think is great i mean going there as a camper is just phenomenal the idea that you can go there and and do your sport that you love or do filming the fact that you can go there for a digital media camp and do action sports is a phenomenal part of the industry that was underserved at, the, at that time i know when i was growing up doing the videography that i was doing there was nowhere you could go to to film action sports on a regular basis at that level and get people telling you things uh, how to use the, the camera equipment or how to do edits, how to do photography at all. Like that just didn't exist. So, I mean, I think it's great that they're doing that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I remember them doing forward. that at, at Woodward West too. Yeah. Did you ever go out to Woodward West when you were out in California? Yep, I, I'd been out there a couple of times. Um, one of the years we did Colony of Summer, um, they had somebody near Colony, uh, near Woodward West that was doing the edit after Dave stopped. Um, so I went out there to help him with that. And I was at West for that time. It was back when they had the Enterprise was there, the big wood one park out um, in the middle um, when Richie was, Richie was there still. And, uh, but Woodward East always had my heart. Like that was my kind of go-to. When they bought Woodward West, I always kind of felt like it was, it's like, that's not the same. That's not the same, same thing as, as East because I had just so many years at East and it's, it's a special place in my heart. I like, uh, I spent more time at Woodward West, but I do like East. You know, I went there for the what year is it? Mm -hmm. twice, and that was fun, you know? Yeah. I'm back there. I mean, I wish I could have skated back in, you know, my prime of skating. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But not old, decrepit, broken back yawn. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. I, I'm getting to that point too, where I'm like, not necessarily broken back, knock on wood, but um, it's just not the same. It's not the same as it was. Still fun, but in my head, I still want to like hurricane topsail handrails, and my body's like, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you won't survive. So, but I'm gonna do another one. I'm gonna do another one. I'm gonna... It was like four years ago. We went out to uh, Unit Twenty Three Skate Park in Scotland. Mm -hmm. I think it's the name of it. It's like uh, one of the most amazing skate parks I've ever seen. And I'm like, man, I really wish I was like twenty years younger at the skate park <sighs> right now. I know, but I know. It was awesome. I want to go back. We actually slept, yeah. slept there for like three nights. It was really yeah. cool. And, that, and that's the one with... Um, for like uh, Chaz Quinn. Sands and, and Yeah, and Chaz Scott Sands Quinn. and Quinn. Yeah, yeah. that's where they're, their spot. Um, and Chaz was actually living there too when we were visited. He took us around the Highlands and gave us a tour. That's, I mean, that's home. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Getting to skate with like legends like that is just, it's an experience. And, you know, it's fun because... Um, it's just amazing, amazing time. So after you finished college in San Diego for your mm -hmm. undergrad, did you move away? What did you do after I, that? I did. So right after um, I finished my undergrad, I moved back to the East Coast uh, to do my master's. Um, and I, I moved back to where my parents are and you know where my family is in, in Baltimore. Um, and I, I was working full time then and and doing my master's, my, my MBA in marketing, then um, it's funny when you get, when you start to get older, 
uh, it starts to matter more about what your family's doing and you want to be close. My parents were getting older. I just wanted to be around to be, be helpful, you know, be the good son, you know? So, um, yeah, it brought me back to the East coast. And then you uh, ended up working marketing. Is that your career marketing? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been working ever since I started working at Woodward and doing their graphic design. So that's what kind of prompted me to go get my degree in, in graphic design. And then when I came back to the East Coast, I was working uh, jobs doing uh, graphic design and marketing and like uh, video production, kind of the gambit. When you know, you say you're a graphic designer, you're kind of doing a little bit of everything from web design to graphics to paper or to you name it. Um, so I started as a graphic designer, promoted as a senior graphic designer, worked as an art director, worked as a creative director, kind of through the whole gambit, started to work for agencies, doing um, creative service management, um, working in marketing, doing digital marketing, website development, kind of the whole kit and caboodle. Sounds like you did really well. You know, it, it's funny when you, when you get older and you get jobs and you kind of get into that nine to five, you kind of like go down this path of taking the steps in your career and making progress from that side. And from being where rollerblading was my only focus to then having this other side of it, it, it just makes for really, really like well-rounded life. That's awesome. Did you ever have a period where you quit skating completely? No, no, not at all. Um, it definitely slowed down just because of life commitments, but I've been skating at least a couple times a week since I was a kid. So I'm actually surprised that I still can skate as much as I do. What sponsors did you have throughout the years? So uh, I rode for Spicy Skate Shop. It was my first sponsor. Uh, and then uh, I got flowed skates from Razors for a while. Uh, and then I got, I think, two pairs of skates from Solomon. Then I started riding uh, for K2. And that was my main sponsor for when I was in ASA contests and then on the Pro Tour. Uh, K2 paid for like all my contests and all that kind of stuff. So I guess I was on the AM team for uh, K2. That would have been right around the time that uh, the, not the Varsity, but the, the Nemesis boot came out, that new boot from K2. Um, I love those skates. I, I didn't necessarily like the way they looked, but I liked how they skated. So it was one of those things that you put on the skates and like you could do like 40 new tricks. So you're like, okay, this will work, you know? Yeah, I loved but, the K2s as well. It's been a long time so since I skated them. What's been your favorite skate the past few years? Uh, I have been a fan of um, a, a lot of the USD Carbons. And I've been, I've been a fan of pieces of skates. So like, I like carbons. I like the low cuff of, of uh, USD carbons. I liked the construction of adapts. I liked the, some of the materials on um, the adapt sole plates and pieces. I, I hadn't been able to find a real skate that I latched onto that I liked everything. Um, that's actually one of the main reasons that I decided to start a company in the, in the first place was that I wanted to add, give back to rollerblading and kind of build that skate that I like, you know, with all the pieces that I like and not have to like go to another company to figure out 
how I like the skate, you know? So um, the, the reason you have a carbon skate is because you really enjoyed the USD carbon. Yeah, USD carbon. I, I liked things about, I like the rigidity and the power transfer that comes with that. So that's kind of like my big thing is that I like a high performance skate that really transfers all the energy that I have that I'm pushing into them to the speed that you're going to get. I don't like to lose any of that, especially as I'm getting older. I can't waste any speed anywhere. I need to keep as much as possible because I can't, I can't be doing this all day. So, but yeah, that, that's the main reason that with the skate that we're putting out right now that we started with, um, it's one of the perks of, of starting your own company is that you get to start with the things that you really like. And I really like a carbon skate with an articulating cuff and a removable liner. Like these are the things that, that I like as a rollerblader. And um, I'm hoping that we find a place where people enjoy some of the same things. But uh, I think once we get off the ground with one skate, I think we can expand a little bit more of the options that we're offering to kind of have that whole platform to be able to build a skate for everyone. How many skates are you doing your first run? We're doing one right now. So, uh, mm -hmm. we're, no, so we're doing 200 total. 200 total? Yeah, our first production run is going to be 200 total. About 170 that'll go to retail, whether that be shops or direct from our website. Um, and then we'll have, I'm going to have 30, I think, for marketing, some for the team, some for uh, demo skates. Because the plan is that I'll be going to contests and people will be able to try them um, at the at the contests. That's what we did with the NIM skates. The first yeah. the first NIM skate we had brought them to uh, Winter Clash, and yep. everyone got to try them out. I mean, honestly, with rollerblading, that's what people want. They want to be able to look at a boot and put it on their foot and say, "Yeah, this works for me," or "Or this doesn't work." And especially with our brand brand promise of of the customization and be able to build a skate for a person and you know have it be the skate that they want to skate on based on the way they skate they got to be able to try it so you know that's my goal first it'll be going to national nationally the contest all over and getting people to try try the skate um eventually so the skate that we're doing right now is the mid to high price point so it's the carbon fiber option that is you know, full sizes with half size liners. Um, eventually we wanna do a fully custom molded carbon fiber boot. So we'd go to contest, people would sign up to have their foot scanned. We would scan it and build the, the skate for them. So a almost like a, custom, skate, like a speed skate kind of. Like a speed skate, but in the aggressive market. Um, I think that there's, an, there's, there's, a, there's a niche for that um it would definitely be less than the general population but i think it would really address uh all those people that have those issues whether their feet are larger than than most or or have something weird about them that they need to really have that custom attention to get a good skate fit for them kind of similar to what with adapt a little bit right i mean they a little do bit some custom jobs a little bit and i, I want to be able to take that to kind of the next step you know where it's actually molded to their foot as instead of just to the length of it like literally scan their foot with 3d scanners and mold it specifically for them where are you getting the skates made at it's a 200 is a pretty small run uh the first production run that we're doing we're working with a factory in china to do that it's actually been kind of the biggest hurdle that we've had is just going back and forth with covid and and 
shipping issues and just, you know, how factories are, they're, they're a challenge sometimes. Um, but yeah, since I'm doing this from the ground up, it's, it's really kind of starting in the very beginning of, you know, detailing out what they, what I want to do and them translating it to what they think that meant. And then me saying, no, this is not quite right, but let's go back and forth. So yeah. Have you been to China yet? I have not. I've, I've been, I was going to say with, you know, with NIM, like it was important almost to really communicate, to actually like fly out there, you know, for I, a couple of weeks and just sit there with them until you get the sample completely like you want it. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the challenge right now, especially with COVID is that like, they've been going on and off about shutting down the country in general for, for China, not letting anyone in. So it hasn't been an option. So we really had to be doing this over, you know, internet chat and, and, pictures and samples being sent to me and me kind of going through it and giving them check sheets of everything that needs to be fixed and you know um that's that's why there's been delays um honestly so originally it was uh may 2021 is when i was aiming to release uh this skate first but just to go back and forth with china and get the specifications to the way that i wanted them um it's been delayed to now so um, it's just one of those things, you know, you want to make sure you do it right, that it's a good skate for people to skate and, you know, it will be received well because you never get another chance due to the first launch. So just taking the time to kind of get it right. When you were first teasing your skate was around the same time that Charles Dunkel was ah. promoting his skate, that, mm -hmm. which never happened. But I thought I remembered you posting some photos with a boot on a last, like had just been molded. Yes. Were you doing some molding yourself or? What was, I'm still, what? I'm still messing around with, with uh, the making plaster molds. So eventually for that high-end model that we're going to do, we're going to do all of that uh, in, in country. So we'll do that locally here. It'll be kind of boutique skates that we're putting out that we'll be doing all in-house. Um, that being said, the first production run, especially if we want to do higher quantities, it's just kind of not realistic to make it break even you know adapt has a good model that they do that but they're limited in the amount of skates that they can do in a year because he's doing a lot of it himself and just kind of pushing through that um, with that comes a higher price tag so i'm trying to balance between those two of the fully custom uh handmade version as well as doing a production skate that we can kind of get out to the masses i think um, having both of those is perfect you know yeah 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 the high-end version for the people that really want it and then the production one for kind of everyone else um, i mean 200 200 skates is not that many and if you're only doing 170 stores i could see those clearing out pretty quick yeah i i, I go back and forth like we're we're launching the pre-sale on monday so i go back and forth from confidently that we're gonna sell out to oh my god are we gonna sell them all like it's the, the, the struggle of a business owner of like, do they like me? That kind of, kind of stuff. So um, I'm, having a, I'm having a week here, you know? I think you'll do very, very well. You know, I think you picked the right time. There's a lot of brands coming out obviously now, but mm -hmm. people, people are hungry. People are more willing to spend money, you know, since COVID. Um, yep. And I, I want to ask you, when did you first actually seriously think about starting your own skate company? And like, and how did it end up progressing and moving along? Uh, so in 2000, the end of 2019, um, I had been building uh, the compound for
for a couple years. Yeah, a couple years at that point. Uh, we have a local local group of people that come through here, a bunch of old guys and some young bucks too. But um, we have a nice community here, and I and I had been thinking about how I wanted to. I still want to be part of the industry. I'm not I'm not doing the high level of skating that I used to. So I'm never going to be that sponsored rider again. You know, coming to grips with that as you get older is always a challenge. You know, you want to, but it's just not it's not feasible forever. So, um, but I want to be part of the industry and I still want to be in it because I love blading so much. So I was trying to figure out how, what could I do to still be involved? You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not Dustin Latimer or, or even Julio, like I'm not that guy. So what can I contribute back to kind of put my mark on rollerblading as a whole? And, you know, you look at all the product lines that are out there and, you know, you, you look at clothing, apparel, wheels, you look at all these things that you could do. And for me, it was like, what, what do my skill set actually add to the equation? And I thought that in a boot design would be ideal for that because I've really been a technical rollerblader my entire career. And that's the things that I, I mean, I'll sit and discuss skate specs at nauseum just to because I enjoy it so like and really knowing what I like about skates um having conversations with like Mike Falcone about that it's just like like tinkering with things and and trying to figure out what I like and, and to make it happen so I figured that would be kind of ideal and especially with the success that John has had with uh with them skates and like being skater owned and and really kind of try to grow that um that's something I would I look up to and I, I would love to replicate um, just with a different brand vision than, than he has. Who are you trying to target with your brand? What type of skater? Uh, so, so that's the weird thing. Like I, I think that the biggest thing with my brand, it's about perspective and everyone having their own unique perspective on rollerblading. I wanna to cater to the person who cares about customizing the people who care about the technical side of rollerblading and help them figure out what they like, whether they like a centered groove or they like a angled back groove, or if they like a squared back sole plate, or they like a high cuff. Like, I, I think that there's not enough discussion about that. A lot of times skaters are just given a skate by the company that they like to skate with. And they're just like, here's the skate, go skate it. And they don't necessarily think about kind of the technical aspects of it. Um, so I'm hoping to promote that, that is, that's the thing that I want to focus on is, is the skater that wants a nuanced approach to rollerblading. Are you the only owner of the brand? I am. I am sole owner, just me. And who did I you do bring have, together to, to help you? I, I do have, I had to bring in some people to help me with some of the technical pieces. Um, I'm working right now. I'm working with, uh, Mike Rios did a lot of my soft goods shoe design pieces of it. Um, doing the layouts for uh, what the soft goods arrangement would be. Um, and then I, I brought in um, Justin Thursday for uh, CAD and soul plates design and the, the digital re renderings of pieces for the factories. Um, and, that, and that's really, that's all the people that are really working on it. Um, I do have some close friends that are helping me just from a support standpoint. Lee Barwick is one of the, the locals here that helps me a lot. 
from a sales perspective, just kind of getting out there and talking to people. Um, cause realistically I'm, I'm the guy in the background. I'm not the, the sales guy, you know, so. Are we going to see any detailed photos of these sell plates? Uh, yeah. I mean, I have lots do, of detailed photos. Do you have them up uh, ready? Uh, no, no, I, I, that's like the one photo I didn't take. I think I posted one in one of the like Facebook posts. Um, but I have, um, and it, it's not something that I was trying to hide or not show. I just uh, didn't take a picture of it. Um, I'm trying to think if I have one here, right, within reach. Um, yeah, hold on, I'll go, I'll go get one. All right, let's check it out. All right. All right, so all I got is the sample. One of the, uh, so we have, this is the size uh, 3941. So this is a small one, small guy. Um, it is, so it is about the same size width wise as like a USD carbon. I think it's like four, 45 mils on the sole side and like uh, something less on the negative. But the main difference is that when you get to the heel, instead of tapering back to the corner, it squares off like the, uh, like a K2 Nemesis did. I was such a fan of that. Having that flat, I, I love, like I said, I like to do a, every trick as possible and rough grinds, I, I love to do them. They're just fun. So having that squared heel was always important to me um, to be, just make it easier to do those. So. But yeah, um, one of my thought processes is, is that this is the, the biggest sole that we'll do. So this is the full figured sole. Um, eventually I wanna make an option for sole that's a little more streamlined than this, that isn't so large. It's more of a tapered in with an angled Royale groove. Right now we have a, uh, it's basically a straight Royale groove that just is, uh, cut out there. Um, one of the things that is also pretty cool about this is that there's, there's a good bit of plastic here. So for shuffles, you have a flat area to put your base on. When it tapers back, your boot can rock this way when you're doing shuffles and it can like lean to toe or to heel. With, with ours, it's completely flat. So you can grind that in and have a really stable base for shuffles. It looks really fun. I've enjoyed it. We, I've been on this sole plate for the last almost a year now. Um, and I love it. I love it. The material, it's a, um, it's a glass nylon um, injection molded sole. So it's very comparable to what's out there, but it, it seems super fast to me. Um, we, we reset all of the, the wheel wells for all of like modern frames so that you can wear like the wish frames without having to that's really cool to, and that's like, that's just a thursday huh yeah like his yeah, design. yeah yeah that's really cool uh, that's yep. no no more dremels yeah like one of the things that's pretty cool about this is that the sole plate itself uh i think that there'll be some demand to buy that by itself to mod it for other things 
because there is enough plastic here to kind of cater to whatever you want to do with it. Um, it's it's designed for a flat boot, so it it'll fit on any of the USD carbons, any sebas, anything that has a flat boot. You could put this on. Um, it's connected by um, the UFS bolts, and then our skate has this kind of eight mount system. Um, and my goal uh, across the board is that all of our skates that we make down the road will have the same mounting system so that this sole plate would go on the high-end carbon boot as well. And if we do a um, injection molded price, uh, entry level price point boot, it would fit that as well. We would design that boot to fit them so it would all be the same sole plates. So eventually you'll be able to order those sole plates just as is. Yes, yes. And what do you um, what type of what type of time frame do you think that would be? I have no idea at the moment. Because I have a pair of carbon skates that I would order some of those for eventually yeah, when, they have, when I, they come around. I think right now, I think we're so focused on this first launch to make sure that that goes well and we get that out of the way. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm looking forward to is being able to order these sole plates in a couple different colors and do a little bit of variety in there. Um, but again, that we have to kind of plan that appropriately so that, you know, rollerblading now doesn't necessarily hold on to stock in their stuff. They, they, we've all kind of moved to this model of um, do short runs and then sell out and then just short run and then sell out. With the skate that I'm putting out now, my goal is to keep those in stock and that be our base model kind of generic skate. Like it's what other companies have done as like generic team skates. It's the base model that we always have in stock. And then when we go down the road and do pro models for uh, our riders, those pro models will be the, we do limited orders and then sell out. And then you just, you can't get them again, but we'll always have the base model available. The plan for faction is going to be a carbon only boot company, or will you ever do a plastic skate? I mean, is that so, something you're considering? So I'll, I'll throw it out there. I want to do a plastic boot as well. Uh, logistically, as, as you know, uh, injected molded plastic boots are, there's, there's usually a heavy lift if you want to do a fully custom new mold. It's just, it's a, it's a heavy lift to get off the ground just because of the, capital required to be able to do that. That's why most companies take the path of using an open mold that already exists that they can tweak a little bit. Um, so that's how USD started, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really the only way to do it. Um, but with a carbon boot, uh, the, the costs to start up are cheaper because of the way it's built. So carbon fiber skates are built off of last, like you mentioned before, and those last, they cost maybe 50 bucks to, to, to make a custom last instead of the, you know, 30 grand to get all the sizes of an injection mold. So it makes it easier to kind of get it off the ground. But down the road, it is, is in our plan long-term to do a price point, uh, entry price point, maybe 250 of a plastic boot. Um, that's one of the things that I think that there's a, there's a niche in the market right now where um, a lot of the larger companies don't necessarily do a lot of product marketing. So they don't do a lot of um, products line strategy anymore. Rollerblade used to do it back in the day a lot more 
now we don't necessarily see it a lot in the industry. Um, but I'd like to have, you know, an injection molded boot that might be split size. So it would be two sizes, like um, 9, 10 would be a boot, 11, 12 would be a boot. Um, so as you go up the price points for, with our company, you get more and more custom, more catered to your foot. The entry level boot would be cheaper and less customized. And then as you go up, you get more and more based on the price point. The liners coming in the skates, how are they different than other liners? Or are they inspired by a liner? What's the liner like? Well, I think uh, for me, uh, I don't necessarily think it was inspired by anything. Uh, with liners nowadays, there you you have um, you really only have a couple options. Some of the materials that you use, some of the features that you use are similar from from liner to liner, but um, it it is a a kind of default standard liner. With um, since the the liners themselves are are heat moldable with um, the skates, um, the foam that it uses is heat moldable foam, but uh, I would say they're more of the, the padded liners, um, not like an intuition. They're not a, a second skin type of liner or a intuition where they're super thin. They're more, they have more padding and they're more soft than, than anything else. Um, but again, they are removable liners. So that was another one of the key features that I wanted to make sure was in the skate that people have kind of diehard preferences of what they like in a liner. And I want them to be able to switch them out if they want. Would you ever consider selling a boot only with no liner? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think that where we are as a company, the default liner doesn't necessarily add as much cost as you would think to in the production cycle. So I think whether or not I got a liner from our factory, they would still charge me the full amount for the boots that I'm buying. So. It's one of those things that uh, I really like the liner that we have. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a good execution for the kind of standard team skate. But uh, I also think that um, it wouldn't save us much money to be able to not do a liner. So current skate, it's a it's a boot only release. Yes. Correct. Are you do you have plans for doing a frame in the future, having a complete skate? So are you going to stick to boot only? So I would say a little bit of both. So. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, we are going to be a boot company. We are focused on making the best boot we can. That being said, um, I, I want to sell complete skates as well. But I think the way that we're going to go about our complete skates is we're only going to offer complete skates for our pro models. So like our pro models will come as complete skates, but we're going to work with partnerships with other companies, our team riders, and their other sponsors to facilitate that complete skate. So we'll make the boot, our team riders, whatever, whoever they ride for, we'll work with them to then get those other components to make that complete skate together. Yeah, I remember that's how uh, it used think, to be 20 years ago. Some of the skate companies released yeah. boots with the pro skaters, yeah. pro frames and pro wheels. Yeah, I, I think it's the, I think it's the best way to kind of grow the industry as a whole. If, if we're successful in the boot company that we're doing, we want to make sure there are other, uh, that the riders and their sponsors are getting to grow as well, you know, so that we can kind of 
um, raise the level of the industry altogether so we all prosper. Once Faction starts making a profit, what's your plan for paying the team and future royalties for the skates? So, so for me, it was really important that um, we have a royalty structure that kind of makes sense that also values them and what they do for the company. Um, it's really important for me to do that. So on every skate we make, the team will be getting royalties from that, those skates. Then for their pro model skate, they'll also be getting increased royalties for that specific one. Um, right now, the way that our, our stuff is set up is that they're getting 1% for all of our, for every skate that goes out. So even on pro models, the entire team will get that 1% off of uh, each of the skates. But then on pro models, whoever's skate it is, will get an additional 9%. All right. So Sounds good. Yeah, so it's a total 10% for the pro skates and basically 1% on every skate elsewhere. Um, that being said, uh, it is one of those things that we are a company just starting out. So we got to get to a point where we're making some money to be able to facilitate even more. Um, but long-term, I want to get down to the place where we're giving monthly stipends for the, each riders to be able to do what they do and represent the brand and skate and be able to do that. Um, we're just not there yet. You know, we're, we're taking it skate by skate and this launch is really kind of our focus, but they really are going to be the, the kind of heart of the brand. So um, I really want to make sure I take care of them the best I can. So the team, it's uh, Eric Michael, Shredpool, Cameron Card, and Jimmy Sis. How do you say his last yep. name? Sis? Jimmy Sis, um, yeah. What's your relationship to those guys, and why did you choose them to be on the team? So uh, for the last, uh, I would say, all of 2021 and a little bit in 2019, um, it, I, I had been looking at people like, okay, who do I want to represent the brand? And specifically for me, one of my kind of guiding principles about it was that everyone has a unique perspective on rollerblading. I didn't want to be a brand that had a monolithic vision of what rollerblading is. I wanted the team to have their own perspective on their rollerblading and really be unique in how they execute that to kind of show that our brand can be the base platform and then you can take it in any direction that you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. So with, so with a lot of companies nowadays, it, it was, you had to be a very specific kind of way. Like Face the Music Rosies is, is a good example. To ride for them, you were very much the same type of rider across the board. And I really wanted to kind of break that, that paradigm. I want to make sure that we have a well-rounded team that had their own perspectives in rollerblading and were already contributing to rollerblading in their own name. Um, so starting with Cameron Card, he's, he's been in the industry for forever and he's doing his own things in rollerblading and being such a positive force in rollerblading that um, I, I, I wanted to be involved and see how I could help him do the things that he wants to do with rollerblading and promote his perspective on rollerblading because I agree with it across the board. Um, so 
going from writer to writer, they each have their own unique perspective on Roland. Like when you talk about Jimmy Sis, most of the things that you see Jimmy do, it leaves you scratching your head of like, I don't even know what that is. Let me rewind that, you know? And I, I really want him to lean into that and have his perspective on rollerblading really kind of support him where I can to do those things. Because I love every video that comes out that you're just like, I don't understand that, but that was awesome. Um, and then the same thing with um, Shredpool. He's a character. He's a character. He, he loves rollerblading and everything he does is, is fun. It's all for the sense of, we wanna have fun when we're doing this and to remember that it's just rollerblading. You know, sometimes in the highs of rollerblading, we start to take ourselves a little seriously and forget that we all started this when we were kids, just playing in our front yard skating, you know? And he embodies that. And I wanna make sure we kind of promote that across the board. And then you have Eric. His focus is, you know, go big and do contest skating and like just do everything that, you know, you can do, but like 10 feet higher, you know, it's so good. It's, it's so good. Uh, but yeah, like, so my, my really, my focus on the team was really just, I want them all to have their own unique perspective and be able to showcase their rollerblading um, from our brand. Cool. Um, yeah, it's so, a great team. Uh, Shrekpool's actually the only one I see often yeah. out of everybody. I see Karen, yeah. you know, Cameron occasionally. I met Eric at Woodward, and I don't think I've ever met Jimmy, but mm -hmm. I love watching him all skate, and I definitely think it's a it's a cool team, and I think it's rad that they're on your team because these are guys who might have not ever been picked up by another boot brand. You know, yep. I mean, they might have, but, you know, right now you got them. Yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, I've, I've had a connection. I think for me, connection for a lot of them would be Woodward. So a lot of them have either worked at Woodward or been a staple kind of in the Woodward kind of circle for a while. Cam, I met doing ASA stuff and competing with him in ASA. And then he was at Woodward for a long time. Um, Jimmy was working at Woodward uh, after me. So uh, I knew of him and I'm relatively close to Woodward. So we're like, uh, we're like three and a half, four hours from, from camp. So during uh, 2019, each of them had come to the compound to visit um, just to skate and, and have fun. And I really got a chance to kind of get to know them and talk to them and um, kind of work through that. And, and Shredpool, um, I, I met him a couple different places locally in Pennsylvania and around. And I think at one of the Woodward events as well, I met him. So um, it, it really was important to me to get to know them on a personal level before we kind of get into the, the business side of it. Um, because I'm sure you, you know, the companies that you've run before, the dynamics of like teams and like people and can be a challenge sometimes. But, but once you kind of, get to know everyone from a like family level, it, it helps to be able to work through any of those things. What is the first event you plan on showing your skates off at? So uh, we, we've kind of already showed them. Uh, we showed prototypes at um, the uh, Bashi contest this year. Cameron had a pair of skates there. I think that one of the prototypes there. So they have seen them. 
So they have been out in public. Uh, I think that the next real opportunity to see them will probably be uh, either the springtime contest that I host at the compound or one of the ramping camps that I might end up going to. Um, most likely that would be the one of the official kind of releases. I'm going to the King of the North contest what, next month, and I'm sure the mm -hmm. Shred, Shred Pool will probably be there. Yeah, yep. and he's riding right now. He's riding uh, a set of the prototypes. So we got um, the production samples. So the last sample before they kind of go into production. Um, Cameron has a set of those and Jimmy Sizz has a set of those. Um, so if you see them guys at any of those contests, they'll have the newest versions. You should come on the Vermont Rampant Camp. I, I want to. So so 2022, I'm, I'm planning to be uh, even more uh, at events than I was in 2021. Um, 2021, I kind of made a conscious effort to make sure that I'm going to contest more and being around in anticipation for launching this brand, just getting out there and putting myself out there to see people and talk about what we're doing. Um, I'm going to continue that in um, 2022. Uh, I want to get up to Vermont for, for your guys, Rampa Camp. I want to go out to the Col Colorado road trip. Um, I, want to, I want to get around. And, and I also want to make it out to one of the Blading Cups for when they come. And depending on what Winter Clash is doing, that one's still up in the air, but I'd Winter love to make it out there. It's not so. happening this year. Is this, so they're waiting no. till, till 23? Next year, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm of the mindset that that's one of those contests, especially when we wanna expand to a international market that, you know, we kind of just have to be there. Um, Earlier you mentioned that the youth is very important in blading and, to, and do you have plans on having some younger, maybe AM riders in the future, focusing on youth with the company? You know, it, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, I don't think I will necessarily do uh, a specific AM team. I, I really like the idea of having just one team that is the, um, I don't wanna say necessarily, they, they are the pro riders, but it's one team that are getting royalties, one team that is getting, you know, the, compensation from the company i do think that i want to do some flow riders that we flow product to and that's where we'll kind of highlight more of a junior perspective on up-and-comers that we really want them to represent the brand and kind of start in the process um because i think that like you said the the kids are the future of this of skating there's so many kids out there that are just killing it that are just doing so well and like um that are just such a bright future that um, I think we have to invest in them. Right now, I think the industry as a whole has this kind of dead area in our age demographics from like 25 down to like 12 that doesn't exist right now. Uh, we, we kind of stopped for a while as an industry, like recruiting the kids into the sport. So we really got to kind of double back to that and really kind of grow the youth in the sport so that they're there in the future to take over the lead because if not we'll die as an industry if that gap continues luckily there's been a lot of new little kids on yep. instagram shredding yep. it so that's good to see absolutely there are so many kids out there um like one of the ones that stands out have you seen the um is it the roller twins 
the roller twins there those two girls phenomenal phenomenal scares the, oh, I, I, I love what they're doing and there's uh, i think there's a little uh, like a young korean girl too that's really good yes. um, and um some some older ones um is it dano from uh Braz is it brazil uh, is it, maybe I think he rides USDs right now, uh -huh. doing like flat five to alley of souls and like 1260s to the deck. Like just ridiculous stuff. Like if I was doing that at 12, like it was just ridiculous. But yeah, yeah there's so many people. That I means the first time in years where I've seen like a, you know, a good amount of like small, small kids, you know, like yes. under 10. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm still working out from a company standpoint of how we can kind of uh, promote that and, and do it in a way that's um, beneficial for them as well as for the company and, and Rollerbend as a whole. Because um, it's a tricky balance. Because when, when, when you're really focused on younger kids, it sometimes can come off as uh, comic-y or like too young. So uh, I want to make sure we do it right in a way that promotes rollerblade in the in in our vision the way that we think is appropriate but yeah the the young kids are kind of the future so i want to make sure we're tackling that i want to ask you um about the name faction how did you come yes. up with that um i know that there's some other companies in different sports using a similar name there is are you concerned at all about them confronting you about the name or confusion uh you know i i think that when you're naming a company, it is, it's really important to um, do your research and, and make sure that there's no inside industry conflicts for, for your specific uh, name. Um, but for, for, for me and my perspective for the company um, of having those individual perspectives was really important for me to have a name that kind of lives that. So the idea of faction is, is that there's individual groups or factions in rollerblading for how you rollerblade. You have the street dominant factions, you have vert riding factions, you have you know, park riding factions. And I wanted to make a company that kind of supports all of those factions. So for me, how it relates to my vision was really important. So, so the fact that there's other companies and in other industries that are um, have similar names, uh, I think it's just going to be kind of an uphill battle for me as a company owner to make sure I'm differentiating myself in, in our market to specifically say, we are a faction skate company. So you'll notice that most of the communication that I say, I most always will say faction skate company as a whole. That is the name as, as it right. is. I try very hard not to say just faction or anything like that because mm -hmm. I don't want there to be that confusion. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it, it is one of those things that it, I can't, can't say as a business owner that I, it's not a worry, but it, you know, it always will be a worry. But I think that we can differentiate, or say, differentiate ourselves in a way that um, really defines our vision specifically as opposed to any other vision. Did you design the logos for yourself? I did. I did. I designed that logo uh, myself. Um, and it uh, it started with kind of the idea of um, a target for being very, uh, more like a crosshair or a, um, 
like a tactical target. Um, and I like the idea of the individual um, pieces of that triangle and then having that accent of the, the faction blue uh, to, to kind of denote that separation of the individual groups that are in rollerblading that come together kind of as a whole. I do like the logo a lot and I do like the name as well. Um, and I love the detail you've put into the skates with the embroidered pieces on the, the, the logo and the faction on the skates. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you. I, it's one of those things that, you know, it's the small details, you know, that really kind of make or break things. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that we're always kind of taking the time to do that. As a designer, I, I appreciate those things. And that's one of the reasons that I brought um, Mike Rios in just to kind of have that designer's eye specifically for like shoe development and some of those things that could work well and and bring those pops of color in without being overly kind of going overboard with like just wildness you know like i wanted to build a skate that was subtle and you know had key accents to kind of keep people interested what's mike's I, background with shoe design uh he's worked with a, a bunch of companies as a creative director previously um, doing a lot of those kind of design colorways for companies. Um, so it really worked well for us with his background, specifically with like soft good layups and being able to pattern out some things for us. Um, and, and all the work that he did with um, Denial. So he has that history in the industry as well, which, which is always good to have. So you can relate to the product itself. Working with Justin Thursday, what was the design <laughs> process like? Like he would come up with an idea, he would work on it, send you a sample. Like how did, so, how did that work? How long did it take to finalize the designs of the soul plate in different parts of the skate? So I think when you, when you start out with this, usually it starts out with a sketch, just kind of a back of the napkin kind of sketch about what I wanted from a soul plate. Um, some of the key features that I wanted was the, uh, the heel, that heel like thin squared off approach and having those conversations to kind of talk through what we like or what I liked about a skate and what I wanted to be in this soul plate. And then it was just kind of going back and forth with um, 3D printing uh, versions that, we, that he would draw up in, in Fusion, send it over to me. We would both print them out. He would print one for himself. And then I would print one on my 3D printer and we kind of look at it. We did some testing in the early days. Um, it's been very beneficial since I have the compound here. I can kind of just go out and test new things. Uh, it makes it really convenient. But like talking about like groove shapes and like things we're looking for, it was really kind of a back and forth iterative process with him. So um, it was really just a lot of discussion and kind of talking through about like our philosophies on rollerblading and how that translates into the hard goods of a sole plate uh, or a cuff design or, or what have you. The whole 3D printing process, it's so cool. I definitely want to get one of those set up sometime and start yeah. making some different parts. It's, it's actually, and it's been a really big process for me that has helped us immensely just to be able to like, uh, I have a, here I have a 3D printer for myself and I also have a 3D scanner. So I'm able to scan uh, boot samples that came in so that he could design around the boot samples to cut lead times for what that looks like for development because we're not a factory so we're just not able to create kind of one-offs to be able to test fit things so having a 3d scanner and a 3d printer in combination being able to kind of iterate things 
quickly was very beneficial for us as a whole. I saw what you posted when you bought that scanner. Yeah, that makes sense yeah. on why you have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a necessity to to make this happen. So right now, you know, prices have gone up on everything: raw goods, transportation, oil, and you're making your first brand during these this high expensive time. Has the like prices gone up since you started the process? Like, have you what they quoted you? Has it raised? Have they raised the price on you at all? shipping they they haven't they haven't raised the price at all but um you can definitely see we're getting to the point now where we're going to be getting um shipping costs so that's one of my big concerns right now for like production orders up until this point we've been getting airship uh samples because it's a low quantity they can airship them to me and get them quicker but when we go to full production we're going to have to get them by sea over from China to, to the States. So they'll have to do a full shipping order for that. Um, right now we're waiting for quotes on that part of the production. Um, but as far as, as uh, individual prices for skates, they pretty much committed to a certain price in the beginning when they signed contracts for this production run. And they've been, been honoring those um, now, once we get through the first production run, I'm sure they'll want to have conversations with me about that next run and how much that, that's going to be. But um, that's kind of part of the process, negotiating the prices. I mean, hopefully the prices will go back down again, too, with raw materials. I, I hope so. That one, of the things, one of the things that they had to do as a factory, um, and I, I'm sure you ran into this a little bit, uh, they want to buy the materials in bulk. You know, and even if we don't have an approved sample, they're like pushing to like, hey, let's order enough to do a larger quantity of, of skates, you know, let's let's push to move forward. And, you know, it's then me going back and saying, no, we really need this, this single sample. Let us have that, you know, and really working with the factory to kind of balance that relationship is really important. We had issues with that, with like packaging and Mm -hmm. like the backpacks like when we had the custom zippers made we would have to yeah. order like you know ten thousand zippers yeah you know yep. and so they're sitting there um and with logistics i handled all the logistics with the rat tail and them mm -hmm. you know because we brought a lot of containers over yep and we did our wheels at that point in italy so we you know, get wheels from italy and then wheels from thailand and then skates from china mm. and basically what i learned is every single time you going to place an order you have to call six different logistics companies and they'll give you varying prices by the thousands you know one place is yes. two thousand dollars cheaper than another one and the one you yep. went to last time when you used last year is two thousand dollars more than somebody else and so every single time you can't go ever go with the same person you have no, to call you... all of them every time get the quotes yep and it's always going to there's always going to be one that's significantly cheaper but it's never going to be yep. the same one always and that and that's the funny part that you know Coming from this from a, a rollerblader standpoint, there's a transition that happens when you go from being a rollerblader to being a business owner in rollerblading, that there's a learning curve in that process that you're just not aware of a lot of these things. You know, I've been lucky enough that I've worked for private companies before where we did product development for things and worked with China to create these products. So I had a little bit of insight into that. But when you're doing it for your own brand, it's a whole nother can of worms of just having to know everything and, and know where you can save money and where you can go to do these things. 
And a lot of it's just figuring it out. It's, it's getting in the mix, getting in the trenches and just figuring out, okay, what's the next step to make this happen? For selling outside of the U.S., have you been in contact with or has anyone contacted you about distribution in different regions? Uh, I've, I've been in contact with a, with a bunch of shops um, kind of all over the world. Um, I think for our initial kind of launch, because of the limited amount of skates, I don't know if we'll be fully in other shops uh, internationally, um, just because we're going to have 170 skates for this first run that are going to retail. Um, most likely they, there won't be enough to go to uh, internationally. Um, but I am, I am in the process of you know, talking with some of those places, like some in, in Australia and some in Europe um, and some in uh, South America and, and Central America. Um, they definitely have interest in the product and trying to get the product there. Um, it's all about timing really for us so that we have the product to supply them and, you know, be able to logistically handle it. Right. I mean, what we found is some of those distributors in South America are really big and they order yes. a lot of volume. Same in Europe, if you find a distributor. Yep. And we would, you know, we would just send a container to them from China, would go straight to them. Yep. I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to do when we decide to expand into uh, international sales as a whole is that we're going to have to develop uh specific distributors in all those key markets to then redistribute our skates to the masses down there um but again on the first launch this this launch is really a proof of concept kind of launch just to make sure that the market is there that people are interested in the product that we can then grow it on each future skate order and the sizing of the skate first on the width would you consider it like a narrow medium or wide fitting skate so i would say on whole uh lee my one of my um close inner circle people he describes it as um imagine if you're getting a running shoe on a running shoe when you get a shoe for a race you want to get um like a half size down just to have it be a little tighter a little more form fitting because with my skate you you will be able to cut um heat mold it to, to really customize it to your foot. So I would say it's, it's true-ish to size, but you can size down probably a half a size there. Um, and for the carbon fiber shells, um, they're whole size shells. So, so you have nine, 10, 11. Those are the shells of the carbon fiber. Um, then the liner that is inserted into them are in half sizes. So you'll have a, a 10 liner, uh, 10 and a half liner, 11 liner, you know, 11 and a half liner. Um, so that difference is what uh, makes up that. So um, you'll really able to be able to kind of tighten it down, heat molding it more than you could with a, a injection molded plastic skate to get that custom feel. We'll be making some tutorials on your YouTube channel on how to heat mold the skates. So we've already put together um, basic instructions that'll be on the, the product page. So written instructions, uh, our goal down the road would be to create some videos and, and tutorials to kind of run you through it. Um, but it is a pretty straightforward process um, in, the, in the market right now. I think it's, it's um, between 180 and 190 in an oven for um, 15, 20 minutes. And then you put it on your foot, tighten it up and kind of stand there with your knees bent for about another 15, 20 minutes.
So. Yeah, it's not bad. I've heat molded skates before. Yeah. Um, I, but I've seen some people burn them. It's, it's scary. It's one of those things that like you follow the instructions, you're good. They're easy, easy things. But if you turn up the heat and like put it in for like 350, you're going to have a bad day. When do you expect the first shipment to arrive? So I don't necessarily want to commit to anything, but our goal is uh, probably middle to end of May would be when we get uh, the full shipment here in, in Maryland. Um, and then we would ship it out to everyone. But they, they, I've been informed it's about a month for production and about two months for it to come over on boat. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you can never take it, you it, know, it seriously kinda, what they say. It kind of is what it is, you know, like we want to get it out as soon as we can, but we also want to make sure we are managing expectations um, for the end product. And the wheels, are you going to continue making wheels as well? Or was that just kind of a one-off to start the brand? So I think that um, the wheels themselves was more of a um, giving people an option of how they can support the compound while still getting a product. Um, we don't necessarily want to be a wheel company. That's not something that we want to do. Um, but I do anticipate that we'll still continue to have uh, the wheels as more of a fundraiser for the compound. And one more question about the team. Mm -hmm. have, have you, and you know, when you announced the team over the past four days, every day there was a new writer mm -hmm. and, and everybody had an introduction video. Yep. Um, have you guys started or have a plan for a team video? So I, I want to do a full team video. Um, my goal would be to do the, the kind of standard equation for that every two years ish, do a full team video. Um, but again, right now I'm kind of focused on this first launch to kind of get it to the market and, you know, get that proof of concept out there and then be able to kind of dive into it with filming and setting up, you know, our videographer to kind of get all of those pieces. Um, it's one of those things that I don't think people kind of, it's kind of an insight into the industry a little bit is that it's really important to have someone on your team that is that film guy, that is the guy that's, that's focused on, I'm gonna film everything, I'm there at all the sessions, it's my job to get the clips. Because if you leave it up to like everybody to kind of do their part, nobody will really kind of do it, you know, because it's not really anyone's responsibility. So we're still working to kind of build that team of who we want to be that, that guy for us. And for the products, when you get them mm -hmm. in, you're not getting, I mean, a ton at first, but where will you be storing them? So my goal is that, you know, and I'm sure it's the goal of every business owner when they launch a product, I want to sell out day one, sell them all out. <laughs> and so that when they come in, it really will be, they come in, we send them out. That, that is what we're, we're looking for. I think initially uh, it'll be on location at my house. So my wife is gonna kill me cause I'm gonna have skates stacked everywhere. Uh, but um, depending on how it goes, we might um, get a retail location at some point or a storage location or a warehouse, but it will be locally in, in Maryland. Um, that's where we're kind of base of operation is. Um, I have looked into our neighbor has a field. I would love to buy that property and build a, a warehouse. 
so I could put a skate park in there too. That would be amazing. But like a like a whole new Woodward. Yeah, compound. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, realistically, the stuff I built in my backyard, it's getting out of control. So I'm gonna need a warehouse to put it in anyways. Yeah, I want to talk to you about your compound <laughs> shortly. I had just one or two more questions about the skates. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the largest size skate that's going to be available is 11 and a half? Uh, no, it'll, it'll be size 46, uh-huh. which is for us, it's a 13, 12 and a half. Okay, so you're going to have a full, full run from what, six yep. to? Six and a half to um, 12 and a half, 13. Oh, wow. That's great for everybody. That is, that is my goal. Uh, our brand, our brand vision really is about that customization and having options for everyone. So it really kind of, it's a catch 22 because now I have to provide a full list of you know, sizes. So, um, yeah. So uh, now I want to talk to you about the compound, which is oh, this oh, legendary, right. legendary backyard skate paradise utopia you set up in Maryland. Um, trying. And you mentioned your wife, you know, she seems pretty patient with you with all uh, the blading she, stuff you do. She's the real rock star of this, this, this situation. Without her, none of this would exist. So onto the ramp, onto the compound. How yes. long have you been living at this, on this property, this house that you have and how much, how much land do you own? So it's, it's, I've been here six years. Yes. Yeah, six years. Might actually be going on seven. Um, we're, surprisingly we're only on um a little bit over two acres um but the way that it's situated works out really nicely because i have about an acre in the front of my house and then about an acre in the back but on the left side of me it's all woods it's like five to ten acres of like wooded area that won't be built on ever so it feels a lot bigger than it actually is that's nice. Um, yeah. wh- so when did you decide to build a compound? Like what made you want to have a ramp or a big ramp? Or did you just want to have a little ramp to begin with? Well, How did you start it? And what was your original goal? So um, throughout my career, I've been spoiled um, with the opportunity to be able to skate a lot of really good ramps, whether that be the ramp that was at Spicy that I grew up on or living at Woodward, having Cloud Nine or Morton Mini. Um, being able to skate all of these really good ramps, I got spoiled to like, I want to be able to ride a good ramp all the time. And realistically, in Maryland, there's, there's some parks, but they're not really that good of, uh, good of a ramp. The construction of a ramp is usually for a skateboarder. It's much smaller. It's just, it's just not what I'm looking for. So the really only option was to, to start building a ramp for myself. Um, that being said, when I built it, uh, I envisioned everything that I have now, but I started with just a 24 foot wide mini ramp, five foot high, 24 foot wide, um, uh, seven and a half foot transition. Which just, is the perfect ramp. Yeah, like it's the ideal minimum. My thought process was that what's the minimum ramp I could build that would be fun for me to skate at the level that I skate? You know, because like if you make it too thin, you can't really carve to it. You can't do tricks legitimately. So um, that size of 24 foot wide was like ideal to start to build that part and kind of take it from there. 
it really has been a labor of love just um you know 250 bucks a weekend with wood every weekend just building a new section keep going adding pieces um it's really been an adventure of me enjoying building and taking on the task of building certain things you know that i like to skate is it an addiction uh probably yeah yeah i don't think i don't think i'll ever be finished i i don't think i i think when you start to build a ramp you especially with my perspective you never stop you're always going to be building boxes and little rails and variety of things so how many people help you build this ramp is it just mainly you or do you have a, a crew it's, that, like a no, it's crew? Me. it's mainly me and my wife has helped me a bunch begrudgingly um i it's funny i have pictures of when we cleared the uh one of the first steps is you have to clear out all the grass that was there so we got a uh a sod cutting machine and she was out there rolling up sod for me and helping me build and i've called her out like she'll be cooking dinner or something and i'll be like hon i need help and she'll come out and hold up a deck while i screw it in you know so it's mainly been myself and you know every once in a while my wife helping and sometimes friends come by to help but nobody regularly it's mainly just me I, it's a it's a good quiet time thing for me to help me clear my head i go out there and just keep building well, I saw you posting a few weeks ago that you had all that masonite you were trying to move and there was no one to help you. Oh, that that's that was skate light. Skate that light. was not masonite. I wish it was masonite because that would only be $10 a sheet instead of the 130 for a <laughs> skate light. But that ramp yeah. has like, I mean, that's a huge ramp. Probably cost a fortune. How how are you funding this project? Honestly, it's it's um it's very incremental. You know, I, I spend maybe 200, 250 bucks sometimes a weekend and buy it piece by piece over six years. So yes, big picture, it costs a lot of money, but incrementally, you know, most of that time I was working a corporate agency job. So I had my paychecks and, you know, I'm, you know, working my way through it. It's a hobby of, you know, love. So um, but did the wheels help at all? They did. They did. And I've, I've had people too. Um, for a while there in the beginning, we had a GoFundMe. So people would um, help out from a financial standpoint, just because I do have a bunch of people come through. I've been pretty open to people coming and visiting, come skating, and people always seem like they want to help. So um, I do not, uh, I do not say no if they want to offer, here's some money to go help do this. I willingly take it and I go build something. So how many sketches um, do you make for things you want to build? Are you sketching quite a bit or no, no, no I, you just do you I freestyle it. it? I, I wing it a lot of the times because a lot of the stuff that I'm building is pretty, um, pretty standard buildings, building pieces. Like they're, it's all um, components. So like once you know how to do a transition, it's just copying that transition everywhere. Once you know how to connect a deck to it, it's connecting a deck everywhere it's it's all kind of the same so if i have an idea of what i want to build um and i've had pretty much the same layout in my mind from the beginning so uh, i did for a little bit um i got tired of people asking me so i drew it on one of the railings out there so i have a on the railing out um on the ramp it says build plan and it's just like a hand sketch of what it's supposed to be 
it's really bad sketch but uh when anyone asks me when they're here i'm like go go see the build plan it's it's over there um but yeah yeah i mean honestly the compound is really about the community that comes through and skates it it's all about the people and giving them them a place a hub to kind of exist and have fun um because we are we are all getting older it we probably sit there and talk more than we skate nowadays but um it's fun to give each other a hard time and kind of talk trash to each other while we skate so do you guys film when people are come over or we ever see a best of the compound video uh i don't necessarily film i get distracted and i, I want to skate with people but uh there are people that come through that film clips and we, we have some that we post on our facebook page and on our instagram um but honestly uh we it's really about the people and just kind of hanging out and chilling. Um, you know how a lot of different people have different perspectives on rollerblading and some of them are like, we're going to film everything and we're going to make it happen. Not everybody's like that. So of all the people, I think eventually, Oh, go ahead. I think eventually with the team and with faction growing, you'll see more and more clips of the compound just for out of necessity. But, um, I don't have anything specific from the compound from a video standpoint. Who has shredded the compound the hardest and done the craziest tricks? Oof. I I don't know if there's a top man. What about I, a top uh, top five? The, okay, so we built this wall recently. I built a wall ride. Um, it's like a seven foot wall ride. Uh, over the summer, Eric Michael was here and he stalled it. No one else has stalled it. Everyone has gotten close. I think there's clips on it on Instagram, but it's like ridiculous height. Uh, we also built, um, so that would be one. Him stalling that is one. Um, Jimmy Sizz was here killing it. Basically all year, I've had the team coming back and forth, us skating and doing the things. We, put, we built this wall, the wall ride with a rail on it. So it's like a it's like mounted to the face of the wall. Um, so there's only like two inches behind it. As soon as we screwed it up there, he did, he did an alley macchio on it to drop to coping alley topsole, 360 to shuffle in, like second try. It was, it was amazing. So that's two. Um, we have some locals that came here. Um, they were skating the big rail section. So we have, a, uh, we have a smaller street section and then we have a larger section. Literally, they were just skating it like it was a street section, like skating fast at it, doing like true soles, true top soles, like everything you could think of on the rail. And literally, I think they're the only ones that have really kind of sessioned that rail. Um, his name is Liddell and his brother, Liddell and Lowell Lockett. They're from Florida, uh, and yeah, they're I living that. in. I know Liddell. Yeah, and he they they just like destroying it, you know, and like you just sit and watch because they're gonna go take care of business. Um, and then probably the last one would be when uh, Joe Atkinson's came through. Joe Atkinson and and maybe Wake Shetman when he was here, both of them kind of just destroying it with very little effort doing joe was doing like head high flat spins just chilling 
and 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 she, um, Wake was just effortlessly. He Wake was the first one to do the gap from the mini ramp to disaster on the ledge, on the big ledge. He did that like almost two years, I think, before anyone else. So, and he did it in a full line in the mini. Did like three tricks before and then mute to soul on the big disaster box. So, those are probably the top ones. That's gotta be pretty fun to just hang out and watch some of the skating that's happening in oh, when you're absolutely, ramp absolutely. Like as an old rollerblader, I just love it. You know, I, I can sit back in my chair, I can yell at them to do tricks and give them a hard time, but then they just are killing it. People are just doing well and destroying it. So, I mean, your life has pretty much changed since you had that ramp, right? I mean, you've gonna hang out with people all the time, and yeah, what's what's cool about it is that um, when COVID happened. Um, everything shut down. So everybody shut down and everybody got quarantined. I was quarantined at my house. So I had the ramp. People would come through, we're outside, we're social distancing and like being safe about it, but people are still coming through, you know? So I still had that, that connection to, to rollerblading during the whole process. So um, it's really been great. Um, and it's also, I, I find myself, um, in the industry more and just more visible to the industry as a whole when I have something like that at my house, having a hub, people like endless number of people want to come through and just see it, you know? And what's funny about that too is people see it online. They see the compound and they, in their head, they mentally make this list of all the things they want to do when they get here. And usually within the first 10 minutes, they're walking around looking at stuff. Things are bigger than they expect. And usually that list dials back a couple notches, especially on the big rail street section. Most everyone that comes has a, a like list of like 40 tricks. They're like, oh, I'm going to kill it. Then they get here and they start scratching the head and they're like, eh, I'll just, I'll just do a soul grind or like <laughs> they dial it back real far. There's only been a couple people that didn't dial it back. I really want to check out yep. your ramp in person sometime. Yep. So after ski season, I'll probably drive down to Maryland and D.C. for some sessions. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm sure most people who have seen your ramp want to skate it. And now they actually can. Both you and Tim Schmidt host um, What Year Is It? events yes. with Cameron Card. Can you tell me about the event and how people can sign up to go to it? So usually... Uh, my event is is a little different than than the other events that we have, um, mainly because of where we are located. Um, the compound itself, it's 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 my house, so like it's a little different than rampant camp. Rampant camp, it's like there's a lot of open space, there's a lot of room, there's it's just a different vibe. This is literally outside my my dining room. It's like it's it's next to my house, so. It's more low key, it's, it's less, less people. So it's a limited amount of people that come through. But the relationship I have with Cameron is that we kind of partnership last year to do what year is it here? Um, I wanna do it again this year. Um, I don't know when it's gonna be. Most likely it would be May or, or early June, but- um, Launch party for the skate. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it. it it's gonna be an opportunity for us to showcase the skate. And I wanna make sure that um, people are here and have the opportunity to skate the ramps and have fun with it. Um, 
Usually it's a limited amount of camping spots. Last year we had 25 spots open that are cleared spots on my property where they can put up a tent. Um, they were $25 for the camping spot and then $75 for the ticket for the weekend. Um, but I wanna make it an opportunity for, for companies to come out, set up booths, have a full-fledged event over the weekend. Um, last year, uh, we ran into the trouble that it was raining throughout the weekend. So we kind of did our best to have a good event during the dry times. Um, but this year we hope to do the same type of event, have um, people come through, host a contest. Um, but yeah, just it's more focused on, on uh, growth of the sport, doing some clinics, you know, have people out and just have a good time skating. That sounds awesome. Those events, um, I haven't made it to any rampant camps either. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's one of those places that, you know, I have a really good relationship with Tim, um, Tim Schmidt, and it's, it's a great place. It's one of my happy places. You're, you said on one side of your house, you have woods and you're on two acres, but what yes. about neighbors? You have neighbors close to you, any issues with them? What do you think so, about your huge compound? So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually really lucky about my, my neighbors, um, where my house is. So we have woods on the one side. Then on the other side, we have, there's one house uh, and it is a rental. So the people in it are renting. So they don't, they don't really care what goes on. And then uh, across the street is the only other house. There's literally three houses on my street. And um, the other house, they, the way the ramp is positioned, my house is in between the ramp and them. So they really can't hear it. So it really doesn't bother them at all. Uh, behind my property, there's a, a big church that has 30 acres. So it's not even close enough for them to really be affected by it at all. So it's really kind of the ideal situation for the setup that I have. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. How, how far are you from town? Um, so there's, there's a smaller town, uh, maybe 15 minutes. It's got the Walmart, got grocery stores, all those kind of things. Um, but then like probably a half hour to like Baltimore, like city or like 20 minutes up north to Frederick, which is like the big town. Um, so it's like remote enough to like, for me to be able to build it, but not remote enough to be inconvenient. There's towns close enough with Westminster and McDonald's and all that kind of stuff. I remember looking at the map for your, your layout you had for camping last mm -hmm. year. You have like a little pump track in the woods or something? Yes. So. I built a pump track because I had to dig out a bowl corner and I needed the dirt to go somewhere. So literally me, me and my kids dug out the bowl corner uh, and moved all that dirt to the bottom of the hill in the woods. And we have a small little pump track. I actually need to go maintain it a little bit right now because it's looking a little wild. But uh, yeah, I have, um, I have some mountain bike courses. So basically the edge of my yard is all woods. So I have some uh, bridges. I have a teeter-totter that's broken right now, but I need to fix it. Um, and then there's just trails kind of going all through it um, for mountain biking. And it's what, on my property, that's where all the campsites are. So they're off the trail. So like, you'll be walking out and I had numbers up on like trees of like, oh, this is spot one. So you could like go around, but it's really nice. I, I, I love it. It's, that's rad i cleared out kids, tons of campsites on our property last or this past summer I yeah need to make some, i need to make some little signs for them now yeah yeah it's it's great like it's one of those things that like you do with if you have a lot of property 
Um, but I did it on my little property for the event. And I, I just love, I love having that as an option. Do uh, any of your kids skate? Um, so they all skate, but they haven't gotten the bug to like skate skate. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're like, they want to rink skate a lot and they'll, they'll skate around on the small street course. Um, my, my oldest is, is 10. Um, so she's just learning how to like drop in and, and ride on the, the transition landing of the launch box that I have. So on the small street section. So they're, they're starting to pick it up. They don't like to fall. So Would I have, you consider building a little, like a, a smaller mini ramp for them to practice on. You know what? If they're going to be my kids, they got to go skate the big one. <laughs> but uh, They don't have to fall. Yeah, they don't. But they're figuring it out. So my oldest is getting used to the idea of falling. And like, to be realistic, the ramps that I have, they're covered in skate light now. So it's not a bad fall. You know, it's pretty easy. And on the, the street section, I have a, the mini street section, I have a four foot quarter pipe that goes to a little bank and then a transition landing. So they're all like tiny things that they can kind of go around in circles on. So they're learning how to do that. Um, they definitely scooter on the ramp all the time. Do you have any any plans for more stuff you're working on right now? What's, what's next at the compound? Uh, so right now I'm actually in the process. Uh, so I finished up, last year was a big year for us from a standpoint of building. Um, at the beginning of last year, we built all of the mini street section. So like the down boxes, the little down boxes and the handrail, and we bowled the whole bowl in. So I built all of that last year. It was kind of a, a COVID project. I was building bowl corners and what have you. But now on the larger street section, it had always been um, the, the rail and the right box I built. I still have to build the other side of that, which is the we built the kink box and there'll be a box on the left that I still have to build. So it's going to mirror what's there now on the other side. So I've started that process, uh, building that out. Um, I got it halfway framed. Um, also, the mini street section, the roller that, that we get speed for the ledges, that's actually a landing for a launch box. So on the other side of that, there'll be a hip launch box that comes up from the big street section up into the mini street section so it all connects so be like a fly box kind of or yeah yeah it basically will be a six foot fly box that steps up two feet to a okay. transition landing so i i have a tendency to dream big uh i don't know and my wife hasn't told me to, to stop yet so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going when are we gonna see a mini mega you know what I would totally do it, but I don't think I have enough room. <laughs> what's, if you, what's if you start on the house? Yeah, the wife would veto that instantly. <laughs> she, she already is mad at me because the ramp footprint is bigger than the house footprint. So she's still upset about that. That's funny. I guess you yeah, have to we, do a house, a house edition now. I know, right? So we have a, we have a, a agreement between the two of us that the front yard is her and hers and I can't touch it, but the backyard is mine. So I can't go past the side of the house with building ramps. So the ramp stops right there. And uh, I don't want to cross that because she's, she's made it possible for me to have what I have. So 
have you ever considered having any concrete elements you know i i am a sucker for wooden ramps i love the feel of skating wood i like building with it so really kind of um i am opposed to concrete as a whole i might pour some concrete ledges over near the garage as more of a so i have a concrete ledge but the permanency of concrete is not something I like. I don't want to have to get a jackhammer when I want to take it out. That just doesn't seem fun to me. You just have to sell to a skater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, right now, my entire ramp technically is temporary. It's built on footings, and I could break it up into eight-foot sections and take it somewhere if I needed to. So it's a, uh, what's it called? Um, a, a artistic shed, that's what I call it. So that I don't have to worry about code. Right, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> have, has anyone come out for code compliance? No, surpri surprisingly, no. Um, but every time, like we're remodeling our basement at the moment. So every time they come out to do inspections for that, I'm like crossing my fingers, like they won't say anything and none of them has said anything, so. Yeah, I saw you did a lot of work on the basement. It's been a long process. What are you doing to the basement exactly? So uh, when we bought the house, there was two things that we had to build. It was the ramp and finishing the basement. So right now I'm just working on finishing the basement um, for my mom. My mom lives with us. So uh, she's going to be down there living uh, and trying to make her a little uh, in-law suite. So I got to do everything from uh install the the plumbing the electrical all that kind of stuff so it's getting there we're taking we're taking our time though what does your mom think about your skating still at in your 40s and having a big ramp uh -oh. at your house oh she knows how it is i i was one of those kids you know uh growing up building ramps in my front yard so she's fully aware <laughs> of what i do and and what i build um I like to think that she's proud of me and what I've done, but uh, she loves to stand at her window right now and because she, she can see the ramp from her bedroom looking down. So she'll watch us skate for hours, so. I'm sure she's proud of you. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, yeah. You know, I mean, you skated and you got a career and you, yeah. now you have a big ramp. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting all the pieces together. It's <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. Well, we talked for almost two and a half hours now. Woo! I think, uh, I think we covered a lot of good topics. Was there anything that we didn't talk about you want to mention? No, I mean, I think we covered everything. I mean, it's rollerblading. I love it. Well, I <laughs> have keep... one last question for you, Dan. All right. What is it you love about rollerblading so much that's kept you in it for most of your life now? I think for me, my love for rollerblading really comes from the technical kind of accomplishment, the technical accomplishment of being able to do these things, to be able to skate and express yourself in their trick selection and, and what you do. I, I just love the technical expression of the sport. I don't think there's another sport that kind of hits all the, the buttons that, that you want, you know, from it being, you know, risking, but also practicing and really working towards goals of completing things. Um, I also love just cruising around. I love to cruise around and just be on skates. So 
that's probably it. And, and actually now too, one of the things that keeps me in it are the people, the people that I meet, the relationships that I build with people all over the world. I mean, most of the people in my life I know from rollerblading and I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. It's, um, it's been a great experience and I, I, I want to continue it as long as I can. I agree with you. I think the people, it's like a family you've built yeah. for years and there's a lot of great Absolutely. people in the sport and lifetime, yeah. li lifelong friends. Um, so yeah, I wanna thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Uh, I have links in the description below to all the faction social media and your website and links so people could check out the ramp, the compound. Um, mm -hmm. I have some links to some video clips as well. So I appreciate you coming on the show, taking your time. I wanna wish you Absolutely. the best of luck with the skates. I look forward to thank you. seeing when they come in, the launch, hopefully I can make it down to the ramp. And Absolutely. You know, maybe next year we can do a follow-up interview once everything's going to see how, how it's been. You know, yeah, yeah, what, I look what, forward what, to it. What's been going on with you for the, you know, this coming year. So thanks yeah. a lot, take Absolutely. care. And I will talk to you soon. Absolutely, thanks a lot. Well, that was a super long interview, but man, that was jam-packed full of so much information. Clark was a really fun guy to talk to, very knowledgeable, and he's just a good talker. So I had a lot of fun chatting with him. I hope we gave you all the information you want to know about Faction and about the compound and about Clark's history. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure and hit the like button. Subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. And for episode 12 of the Vault is also very special episode i interviewed matthias null the owner of power slide and disroyal distributions we talk about his history in the sport we talk about power slide disroyal usd aggressive inline a little bit of speed urban we cover a lot of interesting topics related to matthias power slide and everything that's happened in the past 20 odd years since he began out of a trunk selling at events around germany so very interesting episode. And if you want to follow me, I have social media. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I have links in the description below. And if you want to support this channel, I have links to my Patreon page in the description below as well, where you receive exclusive access to content not available on this channel, as well as ad-free versions of all the videos on this channel. Thank you so much for watching. I look forward to seeing you all again for episode 12 of the Dead and Now Blading podcast with Matthias Knoll. Take care. Goodbye.